Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury, and our text this week is Isaiah 12, Isaiah 12, for the uh, third week of Advent. And my guest this week to talk about this great text, this so-called first song of Isaiah is one of its uh, nicknames. Our guest is Larissa Levicheva. Larissa is a dear friend of mine and a colleague uh, in the study of the scriptures, an expert, especially in the Old Testament. She's been on the show many times. I love having her on the show and glad to have her back for the first time in a little while. Uh, it's sadly been a bit mostly because we were geeking out on Hebrews and on a number of uh, uh, texts from Paul's letters, which of course she would have lots to say about, but you know. Just not her favorite, you know, so we respect that. Uh, so we, we're bringing her back for Isaiah this week, and hopefully we'll see her a lot as we are dipping in to the poetry, uh, the poetic material in the scriptures, uh, especially the Psalms, but also passages like this from Isaiah. So yeah, she's a professor of uh, Bible at Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University, and she's the author of numerous articles. And so you can see her stuff, um, all kinds of places, just search her name and You'll, uh, you'll get to see what she's done. She's done a lot of great stuff. So, so uh, make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit sh- the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text, become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Arisa. Isaiah chapter 12, one of the so-called songs of Isaiah. Would you read it for us? Absolutely. So Isaiah 12, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away and you comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the nations, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, your word, which when it is sent forth from your mouth, does not return void. I guess there I'm quoting another song from the book of Isaiah. And so, Lord, in thankfulness for this word, for this song, for this stretch of poetry set aside by the church as an Advent canticle, We ask that as we anticipate your coming in your son, Jesus Christ, as well as remember your coming in your son, Jesus Christ, that in both remembering and in anticipating, you would grant us the grace 
to see and hear your word afresh. Lord, equip uh, Larissa and I now to bear the word faithfully for the sake of those listening in, that they too may bear the word in their lives, on their lips, and for the sake of your glory. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 What version were you reading from just then? This is NRSV. NRSV. Okay, excellent. Do you have a different one? Oh, I got a bunch. We'll get we'll get to them later. We'll we'll jump in with some observations first. Uh, so, what what stands out in this text to you afresh today? What do you notice? Well, I think it's uh, very interesting. It, you know, chapter twelve comes as a conclusion to the larger, you know, section. But while in the previous chapters, you know, we see some prose and some poetry. Right, the end, the ending here, is written in a poetic genre. Right. So, and it's written in such a way that it could be sung, as you just mentioned it, which is done historically by the church, right? And this way, as part of the liturgy, then the leader and the participants are both proclaiming the fact that God is my salvation, rather than just listening to, you know, a sermon, so to speak, that's telling you that God is your salvation. We're actually singing and proclaiming this, and it becomes a reality that we participate in. So I think it's it's very powerful the way it's uh, written and the way it draws us in to participate in proclaiming this salvation and that it's God who is salvation, nothing other than him. But it's also interesting that, you know, from, from the beginning, well, and I think it's important for us to start with verse one, because, you know, Isaiah says, you will say in that day. So it quite clearly puts a future orientation to when that will become a reality. Because up to this point, right, Isaiah is talking about the judgment, the judgment that's coming. But what's great is that once again, uh, we have a confirmation of the fact that judgment is never the last word that God gives to his people. Judgment is necessary. It's deserved, but it's never the last word. Salvation and hope is the last word. So the day will come. And, you know, uh, Isaiah doesn't tell us when, but it's the day when the people of Israel will understand it, right? They're not there yet because they're still facing the punishment, so to speak. But the day will come when they will proclaim. So I think it's already, you know, for them, it's also like already and not yet. The salvation is coming, but it's you still have to live through the judgment, which at this point hasn't happened either. So it's quite quite interesting. But another thing that kind of interesting to me in this verse, verse one, is that Isaiah says, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, and you comforted me, right? So, you know, the question is, why was the anger turned away? Right? What caused that anger to be turned away? If we, if we think about the law, right, which Isaiah and his readers and listeners would be familiar with, they would know that a sacrifice has to be offered every time when a sinful action occurs, right? And especially if somebody offends the Lord. So the question is then, what type of sacrifice helped 
in this case, right? What occurred in this case? Once again, Isaiah doesn't tell us. There is no indication of what it could be. But I wonder if that's the first hint he is kind of placing in the book so that, you know, the readers, the listeners would start wondering, hmm, I wonder what this could be. I mean, he will come back to it later in the second part of the book, right? Starting with chapter 40, and in particular, the uh, second half of 52 and 53, right? He will make that quite explicit that it would be the suffering servant. Again, he doesn't tell us the name of the suffering servant or doesn't even tell us if it's a person or the remnant or, you know, that's why we have multiple uh, interpretations of those passages, right? We're not going there. But I wonder if that's one of those hooks, right, that he plans here that he is going to draw on later on and starting with 40 and then will be explicit in 52 and 53, where there, there has to be a sacrifice, right? And that's where that sacrifice is explained. Yeah, that foreshadowing is really exciting, not only to perceive some connections within Isaiah, though that's the main task at hand, but it also really fits in that we're, we're looking at this for the Advent and Christmas season. Mm-hmm. Whereas those later passages in Isaiah, we associate more with Lent and Easter, you know? Uh, And so that notion of kind of, because it is kind of funny how a lot of the the stuff we sing, both in terms of later hymns and choruses and songs in church tradition, as well as texts from the Psalms and Isaiah that we, as well as the the great canticles in the opening chapters of Luke, Mm -hmm. A lot of these, like, actually at first glance sort of contradict what we often teach, which is that, like, well, actually the salvation comes at, like, you know, Passover, the death and resurrection, you know. This is just the arrival of the guy who's going to do that. And now I think thinking in that kind of a rigid way, I don't actually think there's a contradiction there. I think that's assuming in too rigid way of thinking about how things unfold. Um but it is it is fun to see those connections to see that there's both, you know, because a text from Isaiah 50 would kind of stick out like a sore thumb during Advent, you know. Uh, but there is a connection. There's a connection, and 12, as you say, it sort of implies a turning away of wrath means means a sacrifice, right? You know, that's really cool. That's really really exciting. Man, I did. I just totally did not see that. Let, uh, let me ask you a little question about the the kind of call and response, the participation element, mm-hmm. and maybe there's clues to this here. But so, is there any significance in your mind to the singular you in verse one, and then a shift to the plural in verse three and four? Same phrase. You will say in that day, but now it's a plural you, right? I mean, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but nevertheless, there is a a direct shift. So, yeah, any thoughts about that? Right. I think that verses one through three deal more with Israel, like the Israel will come to that realization and will proclaim God as my salvation, right? Salvation of the people of Israel. But then three through five is an outward focus, right? You as the plural, you as the nations, right? Ah, As the world, 
right? Because it says, you know, his deeds among the nations, right? Make known mm-hmm. his deeds among the nations. And then in all the earth, verse five. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the the purposeful switch to the outward. Yeah, outward facing rather than inward facing in the first part. Up to this point, right, uh, when Isaiah is talking about the punishment that's coming, right, the judgment that's coming, it's all because the Israelites considered their well-being as the end and their worship of the Lord as, you know, probably a means to get to that end. But the day is coming when uh, the remnant, right, the people of Israel will understand that their well-being is only a means to the end of worshiping the Lord and having a proper relationship with him. And if that's true, then they will become the priestly nation as God wanted them to be in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, right? After Exodus event. And also that is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, right? Through you, all the nations will be blessed. So I think that's, they, they understand their well-being. They will understand their well-being only as a means to that end. Yeah, that swap is, I mean, that's really, really, really powerful, you know. So then the well-being kind of matters because if they are not restored, then God looks unfaithful to his covenant, right? So this I, is a yeah. display of God's faithfulness, holiness, right. his glory. Wow. That's that's an amazing way of kind of summarizing in many ways, like, I don't know, the whole prophetic well right, all the yeah. prophetic literature in a way, right? I mean right, there's kind yes. of a there's a there's a sort of genius level simplicity with that, Laura. I really like that. <laughs> Just the the what needs to be taught is this kind of reordering of means and ends. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, that's really good. And I think it's unfortunate that in English, we lose that in this text. It's always you, so you don't know who you is, if it's plural or if it's singular. Yeah. So that's, I think it's just an unfortunate for yeah, the English translation. An, an unfortunate yep. feature of Yankee English. Of course, we do have y'all uh, for, the, for the plurals. Right. Uh, and there is, a, there is a return to a, to a singular Correct. and six. Right. Which is worth commenting on, right? Yeah. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. Oh, okay. For great in your singular, great in your midst, right. is the Holy One of Israel. Right. So, you know, my translation says, O royal Zion, right? So it's again mm. that, you know, kingdom of priests, right? Zion symbolizing all of Israel. Right. right. So we start with Israel, we go to the world, and when we come back to Israel, right? So it's a really nice inclusio, right, bookends. But it's also interesting, I think, to say that great in your midst, right, in your midst, so the whole idea of uh, dwelling with the people or the word tabernacle, right? They, you know, we, we get to prologue to the Gospel of John, right? The word came and tabernacled or dwell in the midst. So it's, I think it's still that, Isaiah is very, um, what should I say, very close to the ideas of Exodus, right? He draws from that so much, like in his, yeah, in his prophecies, it's like he is reminding 
the uh, Israelites of what it was supposed to be about uh, with um, the covenant at Mount Sinai and how they completely twisted it and how that will be reestablished again. So, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. That's so funny. I, for some reason, didn't go there, but I was literally thinking about Exodus when you talked about the means end thing because it's a, a misappropriation of the promised land promise in Exodus would be to think that correct yeah. so God's glorification of himself in the, in the liberation is the means. Cause in terms of time, the temporality, that's what it looks like. Right. 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 You could almost say that the constant is that Israel's well being is a means to the, the glory of God is the end, or I can't remember the term that you used, but that logical relation is harder to grasp in the Exodus because an Exodus is, okay, we come out, <laughs> that's God's glorification is this big, awesome thing. And then we go to the promised land. So it feels like the promised land is the end. Right. Yes. So it's almost exile is like structured to correct that misappropriation of Exodus, as it were. You right. know, yep. not that they're, it's still a constant. It always was the case that they were to inhabit the land for the worship of God, right. not for their own ends. But there is something about the structure of the Exodus through Joshua that could, you yep. know, that this mistake is more natural to make. Whereas like exile, the it's clearly reversed. You know what I mean? Cause it's so clearly like judgment. Okay. Now the well being, in order to build this temple and worship me, it's like it, it, so that's, and dwelling as Exodus culminates in that final chapter. I mean, right, it's yeah. hinted at all along as the cloud comes, but finally in that final chapter of Exodus, the, the glory descends and, and there's this presence in the temple. And that really matches that last verse six, right? The great in your midst is the Holy one of Israel, that, that dwelling, that presence. Right. And the, you know, at Mount Sinai and in the wilderness, right? They, whenever the tabernacle was set up, the tribes would physically be su surrounding, right? The tabernacle. So the tabernacle was physically in the middle of the camp. So it's, it's a very, you know, we think about it as a, a metaphor, right? He's in our midst. But no, that was actually physically evident to everyone that no, he was literally in the middle of the camp. So yeah, that's, that's the whole point, right? So we need to understand that. God is in our midst, right? So whenever we're together. Yeah, just as a quick English commentary on that then, you know, like midst, even that has become sort of a vague word, right. but it's just in the middle, right? right. That's what right. midst means, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know uh, Hebrew as well, but I know in Greek, the the phrase in the midst, like when Jesus grabs a child and puts them in their midst, again, modern the modern parlance of that sounds like, yeah, he was now there in the, was present there, right, yep. you know, it's like, no, it means in the middle. He put it in the, there was like a circle sitting around and he put the kid in the middle of right. the, you know, yep. and I have, I don't have any reason to believe that's not the case here. And that English itself, that's what it, that's what a term like midst means. It doesn't right. just mean a metaphorical presence, right. but a middle. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> that's really, really, really helpful. Let's take a quick break and then come back and dig in a little deeper. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Arisa Levicheva, and we're looking at Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, a uh, text that has common association historically with, 
with Advent and Christmas for what seemed like somewhat obvious reasons. But yeah, so let's read it again. So you want me to do it in Latin? (laughs) (laughs) No, so this is referred to, I won't actually read the whole thing in Latin, maybe the opening line, but so this has a name in the medieval Christian tradition. It's called the Ecce Deus. So Ecce would be behold and Deus God. So it's Ecce Deus Salvator Meus. So it already rhymes, which is cool in Latin, right? So that's the, that's verse two. Why? So that's why usually the song runs from two to six in in okay. you know, medieval texts, and it's possible that it's just because that's a cool line. Ecudeus Salvator Meus, right? It's just yeah. really cool, right? <laughs> yeah, and it parallels in this beautiful way the Latin in John chapter eighteen and nineteen when Pilate brings out Jesus, and it's Ecce Homo, behold the man. Oh, okay. So these are kind of these important passages that sort of parallel, like behold the God who is our savior, but also behold him in his humanity, you know? So the Ecce Deus, as it's called, some of the, some of the Latin names of those songs from Luke are more widely known. People will call them like the Magnificat. (laughs) And that's just because that's the opening line though, of the Latin version, right? My soul magnifies. Um, So this is another one of those, uh, the Ecce Deus. So that was just some like, you know, little historical excursus for what it's worth today. Okay, thank you. Well, in Hebrew, that sounds uh, like a play on words, right? Surely oh, God is my salvation. So Isaiah's name is God oh. is Savior, right? Oh, God is salvation. So the name is Yeshayahu, right? Yeshu, uh, that's salvation. Yahoo, that's the beginning of the name of the Lord. And then my salvation then is Yeshuyahi. So mm. it's it's quite interesting, right? So he's playing on his own word, but it's so on his own name, I'm sorry, but his name actually means so yes. much more than just a personal name. And you get both of the, the big names for God there, right? Right. L on the one hand. Right. And uh, the Yah hidden in there. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I wonder, just because you have the Latin in there, mm-hmm. I have a question, and it's about tw- uh, 12, verse 2, the, the second part, or even the third part of the uh, verse, where it says, for the Lord God is my strength and my might. What is your mm. second word there? My strength, but what's the second? And my what? So, quia fortitudo mea et laus mea. Dominus Deus, so for or because my fortitude, so it'd be courage, strength, uh, fortitude, it's an English word, but it's linked to fortification, you know, Mm -hmm. a mighty fortress is our God. Mm -hmm. That's the same word that would appear like in Psalm 46. Right. So my fortress and laus mea, then Dominus Deus, Lord God. I don't know what Laos means. I could look it up, but I'm sorry. At some point, let's just look up the Hebrew word because who? Well, since this, yeah, I can. And <laughs> although Jerome was a good translator of right. Well, I wanted to pay attention to this. Just you know, just kind of gig out on languages. Do uh, it because do in, it do it do it <laughs> because the Hebrew reads Yazi ve Zimrat, which when we translate it is my strength. 
or my might, and my melody or my song. Now, the English translations go with two synonyms, right? Strengths and might or whatever that could be in other translations, English translations. Greek, right, the Septuagint, right, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has heidoxomu kai heinesismu, my glory and my praise. So they take... So it combines it the other direction. Right, yeah. So that's why I was wondering what, you know... Well, it's, it, is song, it is song. I looked it up. It's okay. praise. Right. Uh, I should have recognized it. Laos, it's like louds, lauds. Right, yeah. La- to, to laud and magnify. It's kind of... Right. So my strength and my song, I don't have the King James open, but that may be how the King James does it because that's a kind of phrase now. That's like a... I think that appears in some gospel hymn, you know, you are right. my strength and my song. Right. So, so it, King James has my song. Yes. I just great. Yeah. But it's, it's just interesting to me why the translators, right. Felt like they have to go either one or the other way. Yeah. Why can't strengths and song be together? So, you know, it is this whole, this whole uh, chapter is a song, right. It's a song of praise. So why not keep it as the song? Right. Right. So he is the strengths, but I want to sing about it. Yeah. Well, while while we're geeking out, then I mean, so Jerome, the translator of the the Vulgate, Mm -hmm. the ancient Latin, although from a sort of textual, like in terms of trying to figure out what the original manuscripts were, generally the Septuagint is slightly more reliable because it's just older, right? right? And probably, and it probably had a whole lot of texts behind it that we don't have access to anymore. Right. But Jerome himself studying some earlier version of the Masoretic text as we have it in Hebrew now mm-hmm. was a very good translator of Hebrew. And so yeah, that's- um, he's, he's very precise, often much more precise than the Septuagint. And there's actually, he often had second edition. So we have two versions of his Psalter. Oh, okay. And he actually started a third because he did the first one based on the Greek. Again, because people were already, these were already songs that people were singing. And so tinkering with, you know, especially in the Psalms, right? Uh, tinkering with the the patterns that people were familiar with is harder right. when it's the songs. You know, it's like, a, it's like you can take all the these and thous out of, out of your worship, but people still fall back into it when you do the Lord's Prayer. Right. Because yeah. the stuff you know by heart is the, it doesn't even sound wrong to you, even though like you would never use right. thy Ever. <laughs> like, and I know people who would like be totally turned off if you ever said thy, thy kingdom come, right? right? But then it'll just roll off the tongue with the Lord's Prayer. We're like not batting an eye, you know? So anyway, so there's, there is a fascinating history here. So I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. So he went strength in my song. Yeah. So yeah. that's, I my think fortress that would fit, and my praise. Right. I think the original would fit just perfectly with this whole, um, you know, song oh, of beautiful. praise. Yeah. Is it possible just talking about that song element that, I agree with you in terms of the substance that there's a shift from the first half to the second half that would naturally from the, as a prophetic text, you will do this, you will do that. The singular and the plural works well, thinking of Israel as like a singular subject and then all of the nations as the plural. However, the second half is actually talking about the nation. So you could see that as Israel talking about the nation. Is it possible that there's now, whether this is in the original intent or the way a text like this might have been used or if it has a prehistory, I don't know if you have thoughts about this, but is it possible there were some – the singular and the plural could have been a little bit of a call and response here as well where it's like maybe 
been thinking in the Psalms where it says, you know, let the priests say, and now let the, you know, let the house of Aaron now say, and now let the people oh. say, and now let the God fearers say, if there's any implied sense that there'd be like a single voice and then a communal voice. If that's not, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, hanging around monks too much and looking for, looking for chanting instructions in texts where they aren't there. But I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts on any possibilities if this had a history prior to or after uh, yeah. the writing of this text. Does this have a life in the worship life of Israel or is that a stretch to think that that would happen outside the Psalter? To tell you the truth, I've never studied this to you. Uh, to, to say more, but I'm only going off this, you know, among the nations in the, all the earth to, to say that's probably why, but yeah, I, I wouldn't know. No, that's great. Well, what we have is the text. All these historical reconstructions are always conjectural anyway, so I wouldn't base much on them anyway. I just thought I'd pitch it for what it's worth, but yeah. Well, sounds cool. Good. Okay. Yeah. So any last little interpretive questions or issues or comments you want to slip in before we take a break and come back and explore some praying and preaching possibilities? I, I think it's going back to verse two, right? Trust and will not be afraid, right? Well, mm. it's, it's interesting that in chapter seven of Isaiah, right? This is exactly what's asked of um, Ahaz, right? Trust in what God is doing and not be afraid. And he refuses to even consider the possibility. But then the day is coming when this will be normal, right? So that's kind of interesting. But then uh, in verse 3, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, as we know, Israel is a very dry place. So water is always a, uh, is always precious and there is never enough. So, but that whole idea of water being present and available in, you know, wells, right? Which means a lot of it and it's deep and, you know, um, so I think it's, it's quite, quite an interesting metaphor that, that runs throughout the Old Testament. And then, of course, in the New Testament was Jesus saying, I am, you know, I'll give you living water. But again, you know, if we consider the fact that Isaiah draws so heavily on Exodus, so maybe that's him talking about reminding the audience of the, you know, God giving water in the wilderness and so many ways so just well, that's good just yeah again, which know. comes right after the song of the sea right which there is a direct quote here from right. the, yes the the lord god is my strength and my song is that whole line is just straight out of out of yeah so it's exodus 15 right right and it's it's kind of the you know in the history of israel right whenever god does something mighty they burst into song Moses is, you know, in Exodus 15, is just one of the examples, right, when that happens. So I think that, you know, what we see in the New Testament was, you know, the Magnificat and all others, songs, right? It's because God is doing something uh, really powerful, really mighty. So they burst into song. Perfect. That's great. Draw from the waters of the well of salvation. That's just really beautiful. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore how we might preach and pray the text like this. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, uh, Larissa Lebicheva, and we're looking at 
Isaiah chapter 12. So I'll read one more version. So this is, this is uh, Robert Alter's oh, yeah. version, which is always fun to hear some of the weird moves he makes. So we'll read this and read it prayerfully. And in this last segment, we'll just explore how we might preach or pray a text like this. So when you shall say on that day, I acclaim you, O Lord, though you raged against me, your wrath has withdrawn and you comforted me. Look, God is my deliverance. I trust and fear not, for my strength and my power is Yah, and he became my deliverance. And you shall draw water joyously from the springs of deliverance. And you shall say on that day, acclaim the Lord, call upon his name, make known his feats to the people, proclaim that his name is exalted, him to the Lord, for he has wrought proudly, be it known through all the earth. Shout loud, sing gladly, Zion's dweller, for great in your midst is Israel's holy one. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, he goes out of his way with poetic texts to try to get the beats right as much as possible. So he'll say things like Zion's dweller, Israel's holy one, because the English, uh, you know, the holy one of Israel is is too many. Yep. It's it's just too many uh, syllables, and it and it disrupts the 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 rhythm. Right. Uh, so if you count the syllables and count the beats, it it almost matches, you know, the Hebrew, or at least. It's in proportion to Hebrew. How's that? So if the Hebrew is four, he'll have six, you know, but they'll all be six, you know, things like that. So that's one of the things I love about Alter for all its oddities. It's got some real beauty to it. Yeah. So how, how might we preach or pray this text? I mean, these more poetic texts don't always lend themselves to preaching in the narrow modern sense of the word. So if we don't do sermon starters, that's fine. But where, where do you want to go with this text? What would you want to invite others? to experience in a text like this? Yeah, I wonder if this could be, as you suggested earlier, actually, you gave the idea to me uh, to read it responsively. You know, there is always a scripture text read during any service, right? So Mm. that could be a way to read the text. Now, that may not be the main text for preaching, but as part of that whole worship that's going on during the service. Again, I don't know what that's, something that I would see uh, the worship team or the worship leader doing in, in the church I attend, read that as part of that, uh, the worship block, so to speak, right? Where, you know, is a good way of not just connecting to different songs or hymns or whatever uh, you're singing that morning, but actually carrying through the main idea that the worship is all about proclaiming that God is my salvation. So, yeah. And then, of course, that can be used as part of the prayer time, pastoral prayer, or, you know, maybe it's a prayer where the congregation is involved, right, where they get to participate and read part of this or all of this or, you know, I don't know, but it is so powerful, right? So, you know, poetry, right? That's why it's poetry and not prose. It then, you know, draws you in and with uh, the text you, you just read, which becomes even, you know, which becomes even more poetic, so to speak, if it's possible, in English. So I think there are multiple possibilities of what can be done with this. 
Yeah, it just occurred to me you could do you could make the point you make about the expanding picture of salvation here, whether it's part of a sermon or a teaching or right. or just during the worship service. I, I see kind of you could have uh, the main reader, the guide of this experience. Right. They would they would read, you know, verse one a. You will say on that day, right? Mm-hmm. And they also would say probably verse three because of the mm-hmm. the, the bringing back of you. Because it's not saying that God will drink from the waters of salvation, right? It's right. kind of like offering another promise. And then a pause, and then read verse 4, and you will say on that day. And what you could do is you could divide it. It's a way to visualize. You know, So if I had a classroom of a dozen people, you could select one or two people to kind of represent Israel. Right. Or if this is in a large worship service, anywhere from 50 to 5,000 people, you could select a portion of the room right. You know, that will be big enough to hear – Without a mic, but small enough to capture the the notion of a right of yeah. just one nation, right? And so right. you could say, okay, we're going to have you guys read verses one and two, okay? And you have it up on the screen. So you will say in that day, and then they all that small group says, "I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, my God, my salvation. I will trust, not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength, and my song has become my salvation." And then pause. And then that reader says again, you just look at that mm-hmm. one group and say, mm-hmm. you know, with joy. Oh, no, but that's when it switches the plural. And then you look at the whole room <laughs> and say, right. with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day. And then you have everybody, including that original group. Right. Read the rest. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim his name as exalted. Sing praise the Lord for you. I mean, that'd be a really just yeah. powerful standalone worship experience or an activity that could be within a teaching or a sermon right. that yeah. wanted to like embody the observation you made that, that clearly the first, the first half is centered on Israel's experience of exile and return, right? Verse one is about we were punished and now we're going to be restored. And then verse two is just sort of dripping with allusions and direct quotations back to Exodus, right? right. So it's very mm-hmm. – that's all insider stuff. And the second half is all outsider stuff. Right. Nations, earth, um, but with still with um, Zion and Israel in the middle of it, in which God is in the midst of that. Right. Yep. And, I mean, that's a point you can make, but, boy, it's so much different when you can, like, embody it and act it out as a whole. Yes. Yeah. That's a great idea. I'm going to pitch that one to Jordan, our uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> our worship leader, our local, Laura and I, for <laughs> listeners, Laura and I go to the same church. She's she's local. And uh, and Jordan actually was just on the show for regular listeners. They know that. Um, for the first time I had her on the show just a couple weeks ago oh. um, to talk about Christ the King Sunday. Yes. Um, That's exactly and, what I was thinking about. Yep. Yeah. This highly participatory thing that she does. They're just amazing. So, but yeah, I mean, this is. But, you know, if you, if you ever, for our listeners, if you ever kind of go to visit a church and see these highly participatory things, you're like, how do they do this stuff? Where do they come up with it? Honestly, it just comes from this. It's just spending time in the word and experiencing just how communal the scriptures are in, even in their, even in their genre and style, right? It's not something you have to force upon them. Actually, the more individualistic reading is the forced one. That's the one that takes work. How do I apply this to just my life? That's actually a harder question to answer sometimes with these texts. 
how do the people of God apply it to our life? Well, it doesn't even take a stretch. It's, it tells you <laughs> sing, right? Like the, the application's right there. So, I mean, this is a text inviting to worship, you know, my one last thing I'd want to add if, if I may, and if you have anything you'd like to add, that's cool too. But this would be the kind of text if you were preaching it, that you would definitely want to have worship and song after the sermon, right? So often, you know, we want to let the band be able to slip out early or whatever. And so we don't always, you know, we have the, you know, all the songs up front and then the preaching and then we're done. Right. And, yeah. and sometimes that's fine, but this would be a, this would be a text that invites if it's being preached upon at all, some kind of response in song Yes, uh, would I think be pretty essential to the experience. And it would really fall flat to preach on a text like this and to not, to right. not have some singing. That was just my two cents. I thought I'd throw in under the wire. Any other last thoughts? No, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. There has to be some participation right from the audience mm-hmm. after this. Otherwise it's like, okay, well let's, let's move on. Yeah. You go do that. Go right. home and do that by yourself. Right. You know, uh, <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. So anything else you want to slip in, uh, before we, uh, before we wrap up today? I was just thinking that, you know, he, uh, he says, call on his name, right. In verse four, right. Mm. And there are so many, like quite often we say, you know, call on the name of Jesus or whatever. Right. And I don't know, sometimes it even sounds like if you call on the name of Jesus, it's like magical. But that's not what's meant by the text, right? When you call on somebody's name, you invoke the character and the reputation, so to speak, right? That's why you call on the name. So you, just by saying the name, you rehearse in your mind everything that has been done by that person, right? Who carries the name. So I think that's, you know, that you draw from the past experiences that will sustain you in the present and will help you look uh, with hope to the future because of the character. So I just thought that, you know, we need, we need to be aware of that. No, that's a helpful reminder. And if you're right about the shift, and I think you are, the shift of emphasis towards the Gentiles, perhaps even as the voice of verse 4 and following, that language call upon his name becomes even more significant, right? Because you, yeah. you're you saying that the name, and they just used the divine name in the previous line, doesn't just say give thanks to God, it says give thanks to Adonai, right? Mm-hmm. And so the implication of these Gentiles are going to take that name and make that part of their identity now. We're not, we're not going to be known by the old gods, right. you know? This is the God that that is our God now, right? So, I mean, there's a little... There's already hints here, like you said at the very beginning, of the drawing in of the nations that's such a theme in the final chapters of Isaiah and that Paul, that Paul the Apostle picks up on in his arguments right, um, right. in Romans. Um, it's all already – all those seeds are getting planted right here, just like those crazy Gentile uh, magicians showing up at the birth of Jesus in Matthew is you know, a little – you know, okay, Great Commission hasn't happened yet for another 30 years, but it's already there's, – there's hints all along of the inclusion of all. And that's something for us to be grateful for, those among us who are not Jews by blood, but included as among the nations, right. among these peoples. Hey, thanks so much, Laura. I always appreciate yeah. having you on the show, and you always have great insights. Thank you. It's appreciate a real pleasure. It a yeah. Thank and thanks to all our listeners, of course, and thanks to – 
uh, Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And uh, thanks to our patron saints who support the show. If you'd like to do that yourself, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways you can support the show and get some extra content. And with that, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.